welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. and welcome to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I am here with the author of a really fascinating and riveting uh, nonfiction story about some really very recent and very fascinating uh, economic uh, kerfuffles, (laughs) let's say. Uh, Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hi, Jen. My name is Richard Bailey, and I wrote a book called Pirate Cove, and it's the story of a fraud that took place uh, partially out on Long Island uh, in at one of the wineries that I stumbled upon after I was hired to uh, by a private equity firm in, in the city after I uh, uh, it was hired to take it over and fix it. So that's the, that's the story. It came out actually came out last week. So congratulations on the release. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, yeah, usually I start interviews with a question about uh, the author's career and their journey to the book. Uh, But for you, that's kind of the same story. (laughs) So if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, yeah, your career and sort of like how you found yourself in the position to write this book, let's say. Sure. Um, I've spent the last 35 years essentially working for various companies taking over a lot of private equity companies, uh, stepping in and providing interim management uh, to turn them around. Uh, when these companies that were owned, that the private equity companies or a corporate, uh, in, in one case, uh, corporate owner, you know, they weren't satisfied with the performance of the company. You know, they hired turnaround guys. And that's basically, you know, the moniker for someone like me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually sitting home, unemployed, in between gigs, however you want to put it, when I got a call from a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, who had joined this private equity firm in New York called Southport Lane. And he initially asked me if they, if I'd be willing to go down and spend a week in northern New Jersey evaluating a potential investment that the private equity firm was going to make. Uh, I said, sure. Yeah, I wasn't doing anything. And so I went down and I went down to New Jersey and uh, the place was a horror show. I mean, you know, it was a family-run company. It's actually doing very well now. Let me correct myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a family-owned company and things like that. And, and I, I essentially, you know, they didn't want to talk to me. They were, you know, really kind of hostile. And, and and so I essentially went to the private equity firm after I spent the week at this company. And, you know, this the first time I ever met him, Alexander you know, Burns, you know, sits there and uh, he's a 26 year old kid managing a billion dollars. I mean, you know, in and of itself, that was odd. Um, but, you know, sitting there and says to me, you know, should I buy this company? I said, no, you're going to lose all your money. And, you know, he actually, I think, liked the fact that I was so candid with him because he was kind of surrounded by a lot of, you know, guys who were, you know, I wouldn't exactly call them the A team of private equity and finance. <laughs> You know, so uh, he liked the fact that I, uh, you know, I, I I basically hit him with that. And then, uh, you know, he asked about a month later, um, they asked me if I'd go take a look at this uh, vineyard out on Long Island. Now, I grew up in Connecticut, right on, you know, on New Haven, you know, in, right across the, the sound from, you know, probably Riverhead. Mm. And, um, you know, I never knew that they 
were vineyards out on Long Island. I thought all wine from New York wine was from upstate. Um, so I went out there and, you know, it, it was just, but this one they had already purchased and they had spent 12.75 million in cash, in cash um, for that, for the vineyard, uh, a thing called premium wine group. You know, it also came with this big, huge, you know, 8,000 square foot mansion in the middle of the vines, you know, stunningly gorgeous, triple A assets, but they, he paid twelve point seven million, seven uh, five billion cash, and I couldn't figure out how it, the value get above five and a half million dollars. So it just didn't make sense to me, you know. So then he asked me if I wanted to, if I was interested in running it to fix it. And, you know, sure, why not? You know, um, and from that point on, you know, just a series of odd events kept on happening. You know, there was so much money slushing around in the corporate accounts. You know, and I've been at this a long time, and that's usually not the way in a company that is struggling to survive. You know, there's not usually hundreds of thousands of dollars coming in one day and going out the next. I mean, things like that. So there was a lot of things that just kind of, you know, I, me- I immediately became suspicious of. Mm. Yeah, it is a... Um... It's really fascinating how you write the story. Um, and I want to ask you about that choice because it has like a kind of blended style for me. Like it's a little journalistic, it's a little memoiry, but it also like occasionally has like the pacing and the tone of like a noir. You know, is that something that you're thinking <laughs> of while you were writing it? <laughs> well, you know, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you say this because I just wrote a piece this past weekend uh, for Writer's Digest. They wanted to know how you know, it was writing about a stressful time in my life. And I I started it off with, you know, I wrote the story angry because, you know, after all was said and done, um, you know, when I started writing, I had already, I left the company. The company had been sold. um, And, you know, they were perfectly, the new owners were perfectly entitled to bring in their new new CEO. I didn't have an issue with that. But, you know, after going through the whole thing with the FBI and lawyers and accountants and all of this, you know, I was sitting there back to being unemployed again, you know, and it was, you know, I was angry. I was angry because I was, I realized that all those people that were by my side, you know, as I'm doing all this crazy undercover stuff, that was just another day at the office for them. I mean, for me, it was, uh, it was my life. It was, you know, it was pretty serious stuff. So yeah, I started to write it. Um, I wrote started to write it in, in earnest after Alexander Burns committed suicide, and I opened the book with that moment when the FBI, the lead agent for the FBI, called me and said, you know, he has a deep, deep, deep Mississippi draw, you know, and he sits there and and he, and he says, hey, I just want you to know before it gets in the media, it'll probably be in the media tomorrow. Alex Burns committed suicide. And, you know, my response was, you know, fairly profane because I was completely caught off guard. And that's when I started writing it for real. Because, you know, until then, and that was in 2021, that was two years ago last week. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, the problem is up until then, there was no ending to the story. You know, now we had an ending. Wow. You know, yeah, I know it's sad, too, because he was, you know, you say this about a kid who, you know, pulled off a humongous felony, but he, there was he, there was something and we've all, a lot of us who worked there have talked about this afterwards. There was something kind of likable about him. You know, he was young, he was naive, he was insecure. He wanted to be one of the cool kids. You know, not that we were, but, you know, he wanted to be one of the cool kids. And he wanted people to be in awe of him, mm. you know, and that was his fatal flaw. 
is he would promote any sort of, you know, story that made him, that he thought would make people in awe of him. And I'll, the first thing he said to me, the absolute first thing he said to me, and this is in the book, my son had just started his freshman year at Yale. And he goes, I understand your son's a classics major at Yale. I said, uh, yeah. He goes, I was a classics major until I got thrown out uh, for running a hedge fund in the dormitory. And the head of the endowment was angry that I was beating him. Now, I happen to knew I'm from New Haven, you know, and worked in the city of New Haven. I kind of happened to didn't know him well, but I had met him years ago that David Swenson, who was the um, uh, the head of the Yale endowment, who was a legend in the investing business. You know, and that just all seemed kind of weird. And I remember sitting there and after he kind of, you know, hits me in the head with a, like, the Yale club, you know, I remember thinking to myself, good God, I hope my son doesn't come out like this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very uh, it's a very nuanced sort of depiction of him because, you know, he obviously made a lot of pretty problematic choices along the way in his life and but he does emerge as like a kind of tragic figure because he does really want people to like him and he's really deeply insecure that he masks with the think a lot of the sort of arrogant boasts. oh yeah mm -hmm. and but this sort of person like and the and the rapid rise and rapid fall of this kind of person seems to be a thing that is like happening a lot in our age um, what do you think like draws us to that type of person, like the young sort of wonderkind, you know, who has all the answers and who has done everything at a sort of like unprecedented rate? Like, what do you think draws us to that? Well, you know, in, that's an incredibly good point, because I've been thinking about writing some more about this actual point. And, you know, if you look at Lib uh, Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos, who's serving 11 or 12 or 13 years now, you know, she basically played the part of young savant brilliant the next steve jobs which and she played to that you know in the black turtlenecks and things like that you look at i mean the jury started deliberating today on sam bankman freed in ftx you know and it kind of and my my my, my point of curiosity in this is really sophisticated people like Sequoia Capital, in Sam Beckman-Fried's case, Sequoia Capital, uh, you know, Anthony Scaramucci at, at Skybridge Capital, really, you know, Tom Brady, all these people, you know, sophisticated people got get drawn into these types because, and I suspect, and it's the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes, they think that being younger and brilliant, you're farther ahead of them understanding what the next trend is going to be, you know? And I think Alex Burns tried to portray himself as one of those. How much of that do you think has to do with sort of, you know, how ubiquitous social media has become in business, you know, because part of being a CEO or like a business leader now is also like doing a performance for like either the media or the public or something. And that performance can be super convincing sometimes. And it sounds like with him, it was like that, you know. I think that's another great point. I mean, you know, there is there is a lot of performance when you're the CEO of a large company and, and that's getting a lot of press. You know, there's a lot of stagecraft, you know, there's a lot, a lot of smoke and mirrors when you get to this. And I've seen it up close, you know, and, you know, and, and being a CEO, you know, you're, you're, you're agenda driven, you're trying to sell, you're talking to your, you're talking to the, the media, you're talking to your senior advisors, you're talking to your shareholders, you're talking to huge investors, you know, so you're always, you know, trying to, you know, portray this image of, you know, that you're the next big thing. 
And I think Alex, that's what Alex Burns was into. And it's, you know, he didn't do it very well, quite frankly. You know, um, seven months, eight months after I started there, I mean, he resigned, you know, and this part's in the book too. Uh, he, he resigned. He just got up and walked out of a meeting. And we never saw him again. Um, you know, and then he went, he checked himself into Bellevue for a day, told his girlfriend that he had a nervous breakdown. And then he went, you know, he was from Westport, Connecticut. And then he went home to his mother's house in Westport, Connecticut. My understanding is he spent some time in a very high-end rehab facility because when I had to clean out the big house in the middle of the of the of the vineyard of all his personal things, I was actually named in the document, the separation document between Alex and the firm. And I was named as the one who had to go and collect all his personal effects out of the vineyard. There was a lot of there was a lot of opioids, a lot of a lot of drugs like that, you know, and they would and they were all from different doctors in the city. Um, you know, so I, he went to a rehab facility and then, you know, six months after that, he resurfaced again in in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And I've talked to some of the people down there that he met and he portrayed himself as a retired private equity hedge fund manager. So he went right back to it. You know, it was so ingrained in him and that's who he wanted to be. He wanted that's, that's what he wanted people to see. It's, you know, it's a it's a sad and tragic psychological portrait. Yeah. Yes, it really is. My gosh. So when you were here observing all this, you know, what sort of happened in uh, what was it that happened for you or like in you that like prompted you to to realize like I have to say something I need to go outside of this and you know like because that's a huge you know probably a big pressure decision too like when do you make that decision to stop observing and sort of you know <laughs> make it bigger <laughs> okay and and again this is a very you know significant point in the book yeah. in the story um a very good friend of mine uh Brad Hoaker who I do some work with now um we were in a meeting with Brad Jeff Leach myself and Alex Burns. And, you know, Brad is a true private equity person. I mean, he's got the perfect background. He was at a huge private equity firm. I mean, he's he's the real deal. And he's also extremely, extremely smart. And Brad has a habit of asking questions that I kind of cringe at, you know, but he just does it. You know, he's got that Midwestern nice approach and he just does it that way. And we were pitching a deal to Alex to be the investor. Alex had agreed to do it just committed 15 million on the spot like that, told me that I was in charge of the deal. And Brad sits there and before Alex leaves, he says, Alex, just how did you get control of all these insurance companies? And I go, ah, you know, I'm just like, oh, there's the cringe moment. Alex Burns was walking out the, the door of the conference room, spins on his foot, looks at us with a Cheshire cat grin and said, Jesus with a telescope on Mars couldn't figure out how I did it. And I'm like, Brad, Jeff, and I are just sitting there, slack jaw, just completely stunned that he would say something that ridiculous. And he turned around and he walked out the room. Mm. Um, and we literally, this is a story we tell amongst ourselves quite a bit. Um, we literally walked to the elevator, snickering, trying not to laugh, going down the elevator 22 floors at 350 Madison Avenue. And we didn't laugh until we got outside. We must have looked like a bunch of, you know, cackling hyenas because we were laughing so hard. Brad looks at me and goes, 
listen, be careful. Something is very, very wrong here. And, you know, Jeff was like, yep, something is. At that point, I was hooked. I had to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the, I, I'm regretfully, so it's kind of, I don't know if I'm regretfully is the right word, but um, it's going to be unfortunate sometimes. I'm the person who has to look under the rock to find out what the bad is. Mm-hmm. I just have to, you know, and until I do, you know, I can't kind of let the subject go. Mm-hmm. So after that, Jesus with a telescope on Mars moment, you know, that's when I started really kind of digging into it. Um, and then Alex left under the very strange circumstances a few months later. And I was sitting out at the vineyard one night and, um, you know, cause I'm like, where do they get this money? And I was, I did a deep dive. Now granted, I've got a glass of wine next to me because there's 20,000 cases of wine, you know, <laughs> at the vineyard. So, you know, I might've had a, a you know, a, a glass or two when I'm doing this, but I find, I find this thing, um, this document that Southport had filed with the SEC about the Security Exchange Commission at the government, um, and it outlined what they were going to use the money for. Now, they didn't use the money for any of that, Mm. and they made lots of misrepresentations in that document. So I knew right there that, A, I knew we had securities fraud, but I didn't really, it was about two weeks later, I was watching you know the series on television, American Greed, on CNBC at night? Mm-hmm. They were doing one about a guy who basically did the same thing to an insurance company uh, in New York, in Long Island, um, Sterling National Company. And he ripped off $425 million and he received the longest sentence for a white-collar crime in history. He was sentenced to 845 years in prison. And I lost it at that point. And I, then I, you know, then I had to, then it's a long path how I got to the FBI, but it, it took probably another year to get to the FBI. I'm so glad uh, that you gave that answer because it was a leading question trying to get you to tell that story about what he said in that boardroom that day. Cause it really is mind blowing. Like to it think was. about what's happening in real we life. We still laugh about it. Yeah. And it's such a, like, it's almost like a, it's too good a line almost like you see it in like the movie te- version of this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's such an interesting sort of dichotomy there with him that like, you know, it's sort of that phenomenon of like wanting to get away with something, but then also being so proud that you're going to get away with it, that you, you yeah, know, just showing it off. Yeah. You undermine yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, I think that was very, very much the case with him. I mean, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, they were just, they would buy these companies. They literally printed, they would, the stock certificates saying that they were, and, and then testimony testified and, and vouched that they were worth $50 million. And they would hand these to insurance regulators in Texas, in Louisiana, uh, yeah, in Louisiana, um, you know, and South Carolina. And the insurance regulators took them which, you know, doesn't speak highly for them, um, you know, um, and, and, and they, then they just, you know, my first meeting with the FBI, they asked me, do you think they planned to be criminals? And at the time, I didn't think so. I just thought, well, I think they got, they did what they had to do to get a hold of the first insurance company. But then when they had $50 million sitting on the balance sheet of that insurance company, they couldn't help themselves. They had to conspire to figure a way to get that in their hands. 
And, you know, maybe I was naive and maybe they were just intended to be, you know, crooks all along, but, you know, they did it though. Yeah. Wow. So this, uh, you know, what you saw and, and uh, what, what transpired um, had a lot of effects for you in terms of your career, because you're doing something else now. So what has been, you know, what, what have things been like for you since this all unfolded? Uh, oh, that's a, it's been difficult, quite frankly. Um, you know, as I said, I wrote the story angry. Mm. And, you know, and getting, and I had, you know, <laughs> I, I told my mother the story. She's 95 now. I told my mother the story, who's a nice New York girl. Um, and she sits there and, and she goes, write it down and she was like insisting every time i talk to her on the phone i go down to see her you know write it down mm-hmm. um so you know writing it down kind of was a little bit of therapy mm-hmm. quite frankly i got it off my chest um but yeah i didn't work for another three and a half years after i after i left the vineyard and that's why i said i was kind of i was angry because you know everybody else just you know the fbi guys you know they just they moved on to the next case lawyers moved on to the next case you know and, it, you know, I was and there I was going, you know, a million it intellectually, I was going a million miles an hour for two, two to three years. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I went to a screeching halt stop. And, you know, it was it was I found it difficult. The first, you know, the first six to eight months I found very, very difficult. But, you know, I channeled that into I got my scuba license, you know, I went scuba diving. You know, we went down to the Caribbean. I went scuba diving, you know, things like that. Um, sailing, you know, all sorts of, you know, ridiculous, you know, passions and things like that. But yeah, it was, it was horrible, quite frankly. And you're now doing things, more things with fraud uh, detection now, right? Is that sort of like, uh... Uh, you know, I, not really, no. Um, I got my, my certified, during the time when I was hanging around angry, I decided to take the certified fraud examiners uh, course and become a certified fraud examiner. Um, you know, I, I found that it was all pretty common sense, mm. you know, and, you know, so I, I thought about it for a little while, but then I got, you know, hooked up with this other opportunity. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying that a great deal. Oh, nice. It's back to normal business. It's not life and death every moment. You know? <laughs> that sounds good. You know, it sounds like you need that after. <laughs> after. Well, yeah, as I as I told people that, you know, the whole experience of the vineyard and the FBI and, you know, the Southport Lane guys. And, you know, there was, you know, the lawyers for the insurance companies that were defrauded. You know, I said it was like a, you know, it was a multidimensional chess game for a couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I, I shame on me. I kind of enjoyed that part. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of sleepless nights, but I enjoyed sitting there just kind of gaming things out of my head. Okay. If this happens, that happens. If this happens, that happens, you know. Oh, wow. Well, you said that, uh, you know, there were some things you wanted to expand on in writing, perhaps. So, um, do you think you'll write another book? Yeah, I don't think there's anything exciting in my life that'll sit there and make it, you know, a nonfiction. I think it's <laughs> going to be a fiction. But right. yeah, I've got an idea of, of, you know, kind of, you know, what happens if a private equity, you know, firm, you know, is, you know, money launders, you know, for, you know, drug cartels or things along those lines, you know, and they all pool up because they try to, well, I don't want to get too far into it, but yeah. it's, it's just an idea right now. 
But what, you know, but, you know, what happens if you know they sit there and they wind up, you know, kind of being legitimate in the, what they've pooled their ill-gotten gains, their trillions in ill-gotten gains too. So. Oh, that sounds very cool. And I'm very excited to read that. So Godspeed on your writing. That sounds Thank great. you. It's not, you know, I, I, have, I have found that uh, that I enjoy writing, but you know, but it's not fun. It's not. It's fun <laughs> having done it. It's not fun while you are doing it. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, you know, it's hard, you know, it's like exercise, which I don't do as much as I used to. You know, um, the toughest part is getting started. And you feel great when you're done. Yep. A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this book with me. I found it absolutely fascinating and it was a glimpse into a world that I really don't know a lot about and it was accessible to me. So I also appreciate that. <laughs> it was, and, and a lot of it happened right up the street from you, you know, yes. on the North Fork. Yeah. Of very local interest. Like I've been to a lot of those wineries. So <laughs> thank you again. I well, really thank you. No problem. All right, listeners, now it is your turn. Uh, you're going to go check out Pirate Cove, an insider's report of the infamous Southport Lane scandal. It is available right now. So head to your favorite independent bookstore or library, wherever you like to get your books. Thanks so much for joining us. And it is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.